Welcome back to Out of the Bubble. My name is Rachel Peru, and you are now joining the fourth series of Out of the Bubble podcast. I can't believe in the last two years I've interviewed over 40 women, and I now have another jam packed lineup full of inspiring women, all with a story to tell. So sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy. So good morning, back to another week on Out of the Bubble, and I'm really grateful and I'm delighted to be joined by this morning's guest. Hella Garlic is an author, Uh, she's had a long-term career as a lawyer and is now spilling the beans on uh, lots of family secrets in a new up-and-coming book that's out in February, but also we are going to be discussing a really serious subject of suicide and the impact it has on the family that's left behind. So this episode does come with a trigger warning if anybody is struggling with this particular subject through their own experiences. I just want you to know that's what we're talking about. So I am delighted this morning to be joined by Helen. Good morning, oh, Helen. Good morning, Rachel. Morning. Good morning. morning. Hi. It's so lovely to have you on here. And we yet again another woman that I've just come across through social media. It's such yeah. a great tool, isn't it? It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's really, yeah. really, really interesting. You get to meet all sorts of people that you would have never necessarily met. You know, it would have you'd been having to tour up and down the country, in fact, probably go around the world to meet to meet this yes. community. So it and it's and it's wonderful. So yeah, lovely to see you. Yes, and you. And I've described the in the introduction how you know your your career, your lifelong career has been in, in law, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I uh, qualified as a lawyer back in 1983 um, in the city of London at the time. Um, and then uh, but then I decided that I wanted to help people, you know, as we do. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to help people. And so rather than being a, a cog in a wheel in a commercial organisation, I decided I wanted to go into family law. And that's what I did. So I, uh, I, I sort of wrote letters to people that I admired and said, you know, can I come and talk to you about what it's like to be a family lawyer? And uh, they said, yeah. So I, I met several people and ultimately I managed to find a job. And then, you know, then I, uh, I had two ambitions, actually. When I was back in my twenties, I wanted to be a partner in a firm in, in London. I thought I'd really make it then, and I also wanted to meet Alan Bates because he right. had a major crush when I was a kid. <laughs> and uh, it, it was really so. Eventually, when I became a partner of a firm in uh, in London called Osborne's, and we went to to celebrate a place called the Camden Brasserie, and then you never know what. Alan Bates was sitting in the same restaurant. Oh, brilliant! I love it. Yeah, but then it, that was one of those things that actually you've got to be pretty careful about saying what what it is that you want because he was fairly sloshed. Two oh. <laughs> other people were also extremely sloshed and got more and more sloshed as lunch went on. So, you know, sometimes you've got to be really careful about saying what what it is you want. So, how do you feel now about because your book's coming out in February? It's been yeah. a, a kind of long-term plan to get this out there and published. But do you yeah. feel? Can you own the fact that you're an author now? Do you feel comfortable saying that? You know what? I practice it sometimes in the shower, or you know, out in the garden, or walking the dogs. I say, I am a writer. I am an author. I am a writer. You know, because it's sort of. I think the most important voice in all of our lives is the internal voice, isn't it? And you need to own something, and the, so you need to get your brain on on board um so yes i do say i'm a writer but and lockdown for me was was actually well it made me finish the book mm-hmm. and so it you know i got very disciplined i just had that one thing that i was going to do and i was going to finish it um and uh and then i used to go out walking with the dogs and uh, so it it unfolded because it was something that i promised that i would do um back in 1981 but you know so that's nearly 40 years ago so that's a long time 
to keep a promise. So let's go back to 1981, um, the kind of where the, the, the story of, of everything unfolds, really. Um, yeah. And it is a really difficult subject. So I really appreciate the fact that you're sharing it because it's something that we don't talk about suicide in society enough. Um, and I do feel there's still a stigma attached to it. So having your story in and having a book published about it is going to be a real help for people, I think. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Yeah, I mean, it was back in 1981. I was 22 and um, I was in, I'd, I'd, I'd been, I'd gone to America supposedly for four months. Um, and then in February, at the end of February, no, beginning of March, early 1981, I, I got a call from my father. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're from Yorkshire. And so like, they in those days you never got a phone call unless somebody had died so i or something terrible had happened um so i took this call in st louis with some other people which i talk about in the book and um you know i i mean i was in complete denial but my father had to tell me that he'd found my brother on the first of march which was ironically to st david's day um, 1981 um, and he was looking david was looking after who's my brother my younger brother um, was looking after a big um old house in Nottinghamshire called Bothamsall Hall. He was a caretaker there. Um, somebody else had let the owner down. So he was looking after that. And I oh gosh, I hadn't seen him since Christmas. Um mm. but it was it was the most terrible shock. And I think, you know, talking to other people who who've lost somebody really close to them through suicide, it's like a the only way I can describe it really is like it knocks a crater inside of you. You know, it's like there's some kind of explosion. Mm. you end up with this sort of void uh, you know a crater that you carry around and and you you know you deal with it as you as 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 you can it's a it's it's a really really hard thing and actually although I mean it it's 40 years ago now and I um, I hope I'm not going to cry today but I may do and if I do then that's fine because yeah. it's part of me um yeah. and I think anybody who has been touched by suicide will know that this you know it never ever goes away you might you, you'll heal and I, I think part of the book in part in the book I was wanting to talk about you know how you or how I have got through it's a very personal story I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. a therapist um, I'm a family lawyer and I'm, I'm a mediator and that's what I specialized in and I've helped I hope lots of people in the past but you know this is my personal story which which I'm, we, I'm I'm wanting to share because I think it's 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 so painful. It hurts so much that it's very hard for people who, who've experienced it to talk about it. And it's very hard for people to know what to say to other, you know, to, 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 your, to somebody who's experienced it. I mean, I can remember, you know, being 22 and walking down the street in Sheffield just about, you know, three weeks after it happened and seeing an old school friend and seeing that she saw me and then she crossed the road, you know, and, and I, now I can I can really I really get that because people just don't know what to say um, and but it's better to even you know say hi and I'm terribly sorry and I don't know what to say but that rather than cross the road yeah yeah and I do mean yeah I cannot imagine I can't begin to imagine the emotions that you go through had there been a lead up to this was it something that he had struggled with ill mental health was it completely out of the blue well, you know, I've, I've got to know a bit more about what happened through writing the book, because um, after my mum died in 2017, um, I found a couple of things, um, a white envelope, which we'll talk about perhaps next yes. week, which is yeah. her, 
her confession. Um, but I also found a brown envelope um, which contained all the legal documents that um, had been in the in the case that my father wanted to bring to prove that my brother hadn't committed suicide. So the original verdict of the inquest was suicide, the first, mm. the first verdict. And my father took a case to the Queen's Bench Division and uh, three elderly white male judges listened to it. And we had a, we had a wonderful barrister called Brian Lett who specialised in that area. And uh, he, he presented the case to show that my brother hadn't committed suicide. And then they quashed the original verdict and then we, we got a new inquest and at that one, the verdict was open. Right. Um, but it but piecing it all together, I mean, I, you know, I'm now 62. I didn't know until this year that my brother had actually bought the gun. Mm. Um, I didn't know that he'd forged a, a, a shotgun certificate license. Um, I, you know, there were lots of things I didn't know, lots of sort of details and piecing it all together. And talking to his friends um as well as has kind of helped me build up the picture of of what happened and you know it, i mean in fact what 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 happened at my at the funeral uh down in cornwall which is where my brother's buried in a little village called moran church um one of his friends who they, the friends carried the coffin so these are 20 year old lads who were lifting my brother's uh, body um which must have been you know again yeah. A terrible yeah. burden to buy, not just physical. You know, physical was the easy bit. One of them became incredibly upset after the funeral, and I got talking to him. So he's my brother's best friend, and then I I discovered that he had talked with my brother. So I'm coming back to your original question: were there any signs? I mean, he talked with my brother about suicide. They mm -hmm. both got on with their dads very well. Um, although this this person who I've called in the book, Nick Kane, was in a different place. And he never thought my brother would do it, but they had talked about it. Um, mm -hmm. And there were signs of, yeah, I mean, yes, there were signs of depression, but, you know, I was brought up in Yorkshire, went to school in Sheffield. You know, depression was a word that my father said, my father said depression doesn't exist. Pull yourself mm -hmm. together. Um, so it's that, you know, you can't talk about it. You can't talk about the fact that my brother is becoming quieter and more withdrawn from it it's just you know he'll have to pull himself together and get a job and then he'll be all right mm. so it, it i mean yes looking back now with what i know you know the, the signs seem to be blaring you know like huge huge traffic light signs but at the time i i uh, I, I didn't know and and i was also you know i was kind of desperate to get away from my family it wasn't we lived in this really grand house in in Yorkshire, eight bedrooms, William and Mary place in 1689. So, la la la. You know, from the outside, we we'd, I think we probably looked like the perfect family, but inside, it was you know it was about the structure and it was about how we appeared to other people. But inside, the relationships were were, were really quite cold and competitive. Mm -hmm. I think um, so, uh, and I didn't know that either because you know one of the things. That, you know, normal is what normally happens to you isn't it so yeah. if, if you know depression doesn't exist pull yourself together you know get on with it that that I, I kind of thought everybody had that sort of life and people didn't really didn't talk so much uh, I think in those days so it's my mission now to kind of talk about talking because mm. that's the real way of 
getting through tragedy and crisis. I mean, in you know, in your time, in your own time, but talking is the way through, not booze mm. or pills or you know, or hiding from it or burying it away. Because um, I think holding a secret as well is a is a terrible burden. You know, you, it sucks energy in for, for people. How do you do? You find the fact that you've been writing this book has that been therapy for you? Has it helped put things, writing things down, kind of help not closure because you'll always hold with you? But has it been a healing process? It definitely has. Um, yeah, I mean, there've been days when I kind of, you know, I was writing when I was writing about the really difficult stuff. Um, I would end up sort of being catatonic on the sofa. I mean, luckily, I've got. I've got two dogs who, you know, the great thing about dogs is their default mode is joy, you know, so, and uh, they'll just kind of be there. And so they can cuddle me and I, you know, my husband, Tim is my rock as well. So he, he's really good. Uh, he's a relationship counselor. So he's very good at, at, at the talking business. So my second husband. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it demanded a lot of courage. I think I think Brené Brown talks about how you know you either have courage or you have comfort. Yeah. So comfort is sort of staying where you are. Courage is taking that step. Um, and um, you know, I, I, there's another there's another person that I that I love called David White, who's a poet, and he said if you know if you if you're going to take a step, start in close. So just you know you don't have to do a huge step. You just mm-hmm. little step and put your foot on the pale ground. So the, the, the book was just about, you know, 1,000 words, 1,500 words, 2,000 words every day. And sometimes it was very hard, and I'd be writing yeah. there, I am crap. I don't know why I think I'm a writer. This is just ridiculous. I should just get back to work and be a lawyer. You know, so in a way, my dad's voice probably coming through. But then I, you know, I just carried on plowing on and working at it. And then the bizarre thing, Rachel, was, Towards the end, after I got the contract with White Fox Publishing, but towards the end, the book started, I can only describe it as writing itself through me. You know, it would wake me up at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, like, you know, in chapter 24, you need to put this bit in. Or, and it, when I was writing, it was, it was like I was taking dictation. So it, it sort of, it had its own energy. And as long as I just showed up every day and wrote, then it kind of it, it came and I worked at it and found a structure for it, um, which kind of so I go back to 1981 and then forward in time and you know sort of it's mostly set in 1981. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. after that awful event, how do you begin to rebuild your life as a young 20-year-old girl that's just lost a brother in that shocking, awful way? How do you rebuild yourself from that? Well, I think, um, I mean, I, so I, th- the first thing that happened really was that I ended up having a relationship with my brother's best friend. Um, so this isn't, you know, this is my story. And this isn't what I'm recommending to everybody. But um, I mean, he, he was uh, devastated by what had happened. And, I, and we fell in love and we had a had a relationship and I and I you know I hope that helped him I know it helped me mm-hmm. uh, he needed to escape from Cornwall and he had two dreams one was to go to Australia and one was to fly so um this is kind of like truncating everything into a very short period but you know I I helped him 
uh, with his plan to go to Australia. And then I also bought him a hang gliding lesson for his for his 21st birthday. So um, so that, you know, love is a tremendous thing. Um, so that that helped. Um, talking, I suppose, eventually, but I didn't really talk. I wouldn't say much about it in my 20s. I mean, I, I, I would do weird things like I'd, you know, I don't know go to a party and get talking to somebody and you know and we both had a couple of drinks and then I'd wait until they looked all sort of you know gooey and then I'd say oh my brother committed suicide on the 28th of February mm. just to see what the shock would look like in their face I mean it was a, mm. it was an awful thing to do I mean and I you know if anybody who ever I did that to she's <laughs> listening like you know my heartfelt apologies for for that um so uh so that happened I think I mean I I did throw myself into my work I became you know I was article clerk and then I and then I became a, a lawyer um in the city of London to start off with and then I became a partner of a firm in uh, in um Camden in London and so I threw myself into my work and just you know I think kind of tried to expand tried to do as much as I could out out there mm-hmm. But I also, um, I also, I mean, I, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was a heavy drinker, but I, you know, a glass of wine would be, I thought, my best friend in the evening. And another and totally unexpected outcome of writing the book is that I went sober on the 8th of January to kind of stay present now, because I think, you know, booze, I mean, I still long for a, you know, nice cold glass of pickle in the evening. Unfortunately, that hasn't left me. But there was one thing about, um, you know, about booze. It sort of like takes you into a different place and you're not present. And I think one has to stay present, look at it in the face, look after yourself really, really, really well. You know, whatever it is that, you know, treat yourself like you would, you would a really loved child. So, mm going through tragedy you know just be incredibly kind soft blankets quiet peace music hot bar you know yoga walking talking but and and give yourself time because grief is a you know you don't get over it in two weeks it's it's a very I think it just changes you doesn't it it's a bit like a tree and you've had a branch taken off you I mean you always see that it's part of you that, 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 that branch but just be really 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 kind and talk and and reach out i mean you know thank goodness for the samaritans who were there yes one two four seven one six one two three you know um they they are a magnificent organization and and it's it's their mission to reduce the number of people who take their own lives Mm -hmm. they're terrific um and there are other some great organizations as well around there's a campaign against living miserably um you know there are there are quite a few and um tim and i are going to be okay commitment here publicly um <laughs> walking from land's end to john o'groats um in 2022 to raise money for samaritans we're calling it the silver lining tours we're both getting a bit that's amazing i did read about that i mean that is just such an amazing challenge well done you how long, how long will it take you do you think I don't know. I mean, we keep saying, well, do you think we could walk 10 miles a day? We really need to get to be walking 12 or 15 miles a day. I mean, somewhere between three and four months, hopefully. I mean, we're going to give ourselves a day off a week. Yeah. Um, and what we also want to do is to, um, what I want to do is kind of go and stop in, in village halls and, 
you know other places and just get people talking about, yeah. about secrets and, and and things that they're holding because one of the funny things about this book is I find that when I tell people what happened that this the story it unlocks things for them and, and people have told me extraordinary you know stories of, of secrets mm -hmm. that they've been carrying so I, I think by making myself vulnerable and boy, oh boy, you know, there's some revelations in this book and I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I mean, my cousin, um, Ricky, read it too. So he's a, a, a classic car dealer in Yorkshire and um, he read the book and he said, it's very good. I read it in three days. Um, it was obviously very relevant to me. Um, but he said, whatever you do, I don't think you should put in that chapter about Kashmir man. So... <laughs> Cash, I'll, I'll leave that to yes. <laughs> the next conversation. <laughs> How has the family responded to, to you writing the book? Have well, you, I think it's difficult, yeah. isn't it? It's really difficult for them. I mean, you know, it's, um, I mean, I couldn't write this book um, until my parents had both died. So my dad died in 2014 and my mum died in uh, just before Christmas 2017. And so I mean, I knew I just I couldn't write it because I couldn't confront my father with, you know, um, with the fact that that my brother had had taken his own life. He, I mean, he, my brother, my father got dementia in his latter years, but even so, I, you know, just was it was a no go area. So, uh, so my parents, so you know, my parents ha haven't had to deal with it. Um, I'm, bit, I am frankly a bit worried about, you know, if there's an afterlife and they go up to, you know, see, 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 see my my dad going now. <laughs> we need a word. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, better get back down there because anyway. Um, so um my children have been amazing. I have three uh, terrific children um and two stepdaughters, wonderful stepdaughters. So that they've they've all had the opportunity of reading it, and um a couple of them have read it and mm. You know, and, and it's it's not easy because the relationship that I had with my parents was very different from my kids' relationship with yeah. with their grandparents. They you know they they loved their grandparents, my, and my my parents really came into their own when it came to being grandparents. They were f a fantastic granny and grandpa. Um, so you know, it's just it's not easy. I mean, I think they support me, and you know, that that's that's beginning again. And then then other members of the family. Um, I think I found it helpful as my auntie Judy, who's seven years younger than my mum. And my mum always used to say, you know, uh, that her parents had promised that she would be the only one. And then Judy came along seven years later. And my mother just would harked on about this the whole of her life. And it devastated me. It devastated me when Judy arrived. You know, <laughs> I was like, you know, just get over it, mum. You know, but um you know then so i think judy you know may have found it helpful and, and then also i've been through the old family photographs and there are these pictures of my mum looking so happy until the age of seven and then after that just you know i think children take things very literally don't they so if her mum and dad had said to her to my mum you know you're going to be the only one and then suddenly things changed you know she she never really got over it um so there's been that and then um a few people, not very many people have read it um, so far. But I, I told I told the story to one or two people and um, I, you know, do you know what? I mean, Rachel, I've, I've been thinking about this book. I don't know if anybody out there has, read, has watched Toy Story 4. Yes. So 
Yeah, so, so, so in the character of Forky, you know, the little plastic yeah. fork that the little girl yeah. makes, because, because she re and she really loves it, but Forky's kind of got one eye out like that and kind of goes around like that. And Forky really kind of wants to go in the bin all the time, in the trash, because that's where he thinks he's his rightful place. So it's been a real struggle for me not to kind of keep chucking the book in the trash. Um, anyway, but it has come out and people have read it and my uh, editor, Sam Boyce, up in Edinburgh was incredibly sweet and phoned me and said look I'm, I may be the first person to say this to you but there will be thousands more who say this to you Helen this is a wonderful book and thank you for writing it so you know when I hear that then think yeah, oh, yeah. I'm doing the right thing deep breath yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely and I think what will be really special as well is the fact that you can go to groups and talk about it and get conversation mm -hmm. like you say it's about communication and getting conversations going yeah. isn't it it is it is i think you know um yeah people it, it these secrets these secrets hurt and, and also a place a safe place where you can go and talk about what happened to you because i think i think that is you know that is the starting place mm -hmm. is to say this is what happened yeah. um and that that's it's really important to say that and, and also ideally that you've got you've got somebody who can acknowledge the hurt it may not be the person who hurt you but mm. if you say this is what happened and then somebody somebody to acknowledge the hurt rather than that thing that people do sometimes go oh well don't worry you know you, you'll be fine now and, and or you know try and clamp it all down and make it better yeah you do need to be able to talk about it and and you know in full and have somebody hear you. So have somebody listen to you and ideally acknowledge the hurt. And then from that place, I think people can, you know, you can start to start to rebuild. Um and you know, not pretend that it's just great because it's just really not great. Yeah. My yeah, my younger daughter has a phrase, um, stuff happens, mum. Um and it does, doesn't it? <laughs> you can't argue with that. Stuff does happen. Um, but you can't pretend that it hasn't happened once it has happened. And then yeah. so you need to kind of tackle it. Mm. Yeah, and you also can't ignore the impact it has on you long term, can you? You just can't. I don't think you can. No, you can't. Um, I mean, you know, these things they might have an effect on our mental health, but, you know, I think it actually has an effect on your physical health as well. You, you mm. know, it's not uncommon um to, you know for something to have some major trauma to happen and then somebody gets you know you have a heart attack later on there is some I can't remember what the phrase is but there is you know, sort of a broken heart syndrome and mm. you know people can get things like diabetes and you know I mean it's it's extraordinary we have to be careful about yeah. these bodies that we inhabit for a period of time and and look after them. Do you think the stigma of, of suicide has changed since 40 years ago do you think we have lifted that or do you still feel like it's still present in society i think it's still there um i think because it comes with it this sort of like a i think everybody who gets affected by it you know you kind of get pushed into a place you go was it my fault you know what did i do wrong why why has it happened so um and those sorts of conversations you sometimes want to have privately rather you know than anything I think there's still a, a, a massive stigma about it um and I don't think it'll ever 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 be easy I mean god it's you know one of the worst things ever but yeah. there was a change in the law um the, the church law in 2017 which I only discovered when I was writing the book that 
um, up until July 2017, there was an old rule that the Church of England had that said that anybody who had taken their own life, um, there was a very strict definition for it, but that they shouldn't be um, buried in the main churchyard. They should oh, be buried in the north of the churchyard. Um, so, which I always think is the sad thing because that's mm. the coldest part, you know. So, the Church of England vicars latterly have had some discretion about dealing with that, but actually, it was a rule until until, until three years ago. Yeah. Mad, isn't it? So, yeah. if you go and see old churchyards, you can often see, you know, unmarked, or you can see the gravestones just outside the churchyard on the on the north side and that's that was one of the reasons why i called my book no place to lie because i th you know it, I, th I think you know, you know another of the reasons why my dad might have been so very keen to show that my brother hadn't committed suicide was that so he could get a proper burial because that was really important to my mum and dad yeah. so you know that's a change um but i think there's there's a massive cover-up and I, I mean i won't be you know this it's such com complicated topic suicide and um you know recently there was a ri ridiculous thing on social media which said that the suicide rate had doubled during lockdown that's not actually true mm -hmm. um, but um and i remember also reading a piece of research which said that um in world war ii the rate of suicide dropped significantly so it's almost as if if there's a you know a, something that's even more huge going on then maybe that but you know <laughs> these things aren't statistics it's it's individual people all the time isn't it? and we are incredibly lucky in this country um to have gun proper gun laws and mm. because my brother shot himself and if you shoot yourself you're 95 percent likely to die mm. whereas if you try other means you know they aren't so certain and, and one of you know there are a, a whole number of factors why people do take their lives, but have but the availability of, of, of something to do it is yeah. that in America, the rates of young men, particularly taking their own lives, but also older men, you know, it's mostly a male problem, but it, and women are doing it too, is mm. immense. I mean, immense. And the, the Americans aren't talking about it at all because of the strength of the NRA. So I'm, you know, I'm thankful that we're in this country, that where we've yeah. got good gun laws to protect us well thank you so much for sharing your story mm -hmm. and i really am looking forward to reading the book when it comes out so the book is called no place to lie Lie. No thank you and it, yeah it's out in february 2021 so just under six months and up until then how can people find you on social media um you can find me on twitter um, or instagram at helen p garlic so i'd love to meet up with you and and uh, yeah be great Okay. Well, honestly, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I really appreciate you sharing your story. And I just know that you are going to go out there and really touch so many other people's lives and get conversations going. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. I really enjoyed talking to Helen today. And, you know, what an inspiring lady. And I'm really looking forward to reading the book. So I can highly recommend uh, keeping an eye on that when it comes out in February. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I will be back next week with another inspiring guest and I hope you will have a great week. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me on outofthebubblepodcast.com and in the meantime, keep being fabulous.